You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Rated PG-13. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time: the roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th, hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. So in other sports, in baseball, the best player doesn't necessarily win, but in basketball, those guys, they have that power Always has been, always will be. Will Chamberlain got himself traded. And way before free agency, he was able to get get himself traded. So this has always been the case in the NBA because the players are just so valuable. It's hard to believe that we're in February. It's Super Bowl week. And I got to give a lot of credit to the NFL. I really do. I did not think they would get here or I thought it would be delayed. But we're only a couple of days away from Kansas City and Tampa. And hats off to the NFL. I mean, think about the number of people that travel every week and no games that were not played. They played them all. Good job by the National Football League. Again, I didn't think they would get here. And uh, we'll have more on the Super Bowl coming up on Friday's show. Before we get to today's guest, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot to me if you would just take a moment and write a review. Thank you very much. Really appreciate all your support, the subscriptions, the comments. And don't forget about my video rants over on YouTube if you don't like that with Grant Napier. All right, before I do get to today's guest, I want to tell you about Roy's Umbrella because we are brought to you by Roy's Umbrella for all of your home loan needs. If you're buying a new home, looking to do a refi, just go to roysumbrella.com. I have used Roy over the years, and I'm just telling you, it's an awesome experience. No tricks, no gimmicks. There's no hidden charges at the end You'll love what you get at Roy's Umbrella. For all of your home loan needs, just go to roysumbrella.com. That's roysumbrella.com. My guest on the show today is uh, somebody that I have just loved talking to over the years. Uh, he has done a marvelous job covering the NBA formerly of uh, Sports Illustrated and NBA.com. He's the author of a book, The Soul of Basketball, the epic showdown between LeBron Kobe, Doc, and Dirk that saved the uh, NBA. I've always loved his perspective on the NBA. It's an absolute pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Ian Thompson. Ian, good to catch up with you. How are you? Uh, Great, thanks, Grant. How are you? You know, I'm doing good. Uh, You know, here we are in 2021, and you're a guy that's covered the NBA for many, many decades. The game is so different now. Uh, The way the game is played, it's evolving to more of a perimeter game. Are you a fan of the way the game is played now? You know, I I go back 2000, and I had just started covering the league full-time with Sports Illustrated. I was with the Boston Globe in the 80s, and I was part-time NBA 
you know, they put me onto the playoffs with the Celtics. So I did all three of the Magic Bird finals in the 80s. In the 90s, I was in Europe with the International Herald Tribune, the world's largest paper. I lived in Paris and London. And I did a lot of basketball over there. I loved doing the European basketball, the European Final Four. 2000, I'm back here in the States. And they put me onto the NBA full time. Jackie McMullen had left Sports Illustrated, so they put me into her slot. Big issue at that time was scoring in the NBA. It was it was getting worse. It was decreasing. And it was going against what was happening in the other leagues. You know, football scoring was going up. It was becoming more of a wide-open game on its way to what it is today. Baseball, you know, steroids and all that stuff, that home run hitting had gone off the charts. Basketball was going the other way. The Pat Riley defensive posture was the defining element of the NBA back then. And if coaches had a choice back then between on a roster spot, they would choose the defender over the shooter. There were very few shooters in the NBA. You remember very well, Grant, uh, you had to play man-to-man defense. Mm -hmm. So two guys on the offensive team would get on one side of the ball, one side of the court, and then the three other guys would go to the far side of the court. There were three defenders would have to go with them. And then the two guys would play two on two, basically, in the half-court offense. That's so often what it was. And it was awful. It was terrible. And the scoring was going the wrong way. And David Stern came in and said, look, we're going to change it. And he he got Jerry West and Jerry Colangelo, the head of committee, and they changed the rules. They allowed zone defenses to come in. And they said you only had eight seconds to get the ball across the court. And Stern, who I'd gotten to know pretty well in Europe, he'd he'd always want to talk whenever he came over for the European Final Four. He had watched a lot of European basketball and saw that zone defenses forced teams to play at a faster pace because you had to score before the defense could get set up. So they did that. And the the league that we have, that we watch today, is directly a result of that 20 years ago, that preemptive move by one guy to force this legislation through a lot of teams were very unhappy about because they built defensive teams and they were going to have to tear their teams apart. The Houston Rockets were the leader of that movement. Rudy T, they did not want to change that rule. But Stern said this can be better for the league, and he was right. So, yeah, on the one hand, this is a softer league. It's a more of a finesse league. It's turned into a three-point shooting league. But I think about what would have happened if they hadn't changed the rule in 2000, and it would just be awful. <laughs> it would be sure. unwatchable. And the league wouldn't be anything like it is today. So you can never have a perfect world. You can never have it exactly the way you want, but so much better than it could have been. You talked about covering the Lakers and the Celtics uh, in the 80s. If Kareem Abdul-Jabbar were 20 years old right now, what would his role be in the NBA? With the way the game is played now, would he have to change his dominance of his low post and his hooks and everything and be a perimeter center? What's your take on that? Yeah, he would – I mean – Hopefully he'd stick with the hook shot because I had such range. He he could make that. That was a mid-range shot for him. But he'd be shooting threes. He would have learned to shoot threes. And you know what? He would have grown up wanting to do that. Just like Kevin Garnett grew up wanting to do that. All these guys, none, none of them, they none of them grow up wanting to play with their back to the basket more. They all grow up wanting to face the basket. And if Kareem Abdul-Jabbar grew up in this era, that's what he would grow up wanting to be. He'd grow up wanting to be a guy that could do everything, that could handle the ball and take you off the dribble and shoot threes and take advantage of you inside, you know, depending on if a small guy's guarding him versus if someone his size is guarding him. So he would be a modern player. He would have the skills to do it. I, I have 
talks, a friend of mine constantly brings this up, how, who, who would win today? This friend of mine, that's a big lover of the Celtics from the 80s. Like if, let's say the Celtics of 1986 were playing, say the Warriors when they were at their best. And I, I was like, well, it would depend on which year they played the game. If they played in 1986, the Celtics would kill the Warriors, Steph Curry's team. They would murder them. They'd beat them up. They would post up. And you'd have to play man-to-man defense, and the Celtics would kill them. If the Celtics had, if those Celtics had to play today, Robert Parrish would play maybe 15 minutes a game. Uh, Kevin McHale would would be shooting a lot more threes than he did in his career. Larry Bird, when they would play small, he might be the center or the, the power forward. <laughs> right. It would be a totally different game. And their big guards that the Celtics had back then, good luck to them. Good luck to them <laughs> trying to play. So, right. so it would be totally different. Ian, I had you on my show three years ago, right before the draft, and that was the Luka Doncic draft, and you came on before the draft, and you said, I'm just telling you right now, anyone that does not take this guy is out of their mind. He's going to be by far the best player in their draft. What was it about Doncic that you saw entering the NBA draft that you were so sure that he was going to be this type of a player? It, it really helped that all my years um, working in Europe and being around European basketball because you just see the difference between the Euro League, the European leagues at the highest level, you know, the Euro League teams, the top teams from Spain and Italy and France and Greece. Those teams with young players, the, the young players in those teams, they have to be professional from a young age and they have to play against grown men in a more physical league, maybe, than the NBA is. They practice twice a day. When they're in high school, they're practicing twice a day with pros. And for them to, to try to compete, you know, as 17, 18, 19 years, I mean, you can be a pro at 16 over there and be playing with a big team when you're 16 and you're practicing with those guys who are smoking afterwards, you know, and all, sure. all that. So, so the, for Luka Doncic to go in there as a 19-year-old in European basketball and do what no one his age has ever done before, which is to be on his club won the European Championship. His nation, small country, won the European Championship for nations. This is all within 12 months. And he was named Player of the Year in Europe, all as a 19-year-old. That's LeBron-like for Europe. That has never happened before. It was in, it would have been inconceivable. People would have said it could never happen. No young player could ever do that. So for that guy to do that and then for NBA people to not recognize that is just crazy to me. It's it's mind-boggling that you would think that some guy that, that's grown up in that cauldron and has performed and has done it at the highest level over there, why would that not be the guy you want to draft? Why would that not be the guy you want to build a team around that he's shown that already and he's got so much more to go on? Obviously, he had the work ethic. He had the skills. A good enough athlete. You know, not the greatest athlete, but good enough. It was just a no-brainer to me, and I couldn't believe when he kept falling in the draft. Obviously, he's very young still, but it has not translated necessarily into big-time success as a team on the floor. Last season, the Mavericks were only a seventh seed, and here we are. They are 8-10, and and they're not even among the top eight teams in the West. So is that... Luca and his style and the way he plays, or is that based on the team that Dallas has built around him? What are your thoughts on that? 
I think it's the team that they're building around him, and it's going to take them a while to rebuild it. They aren't a team that tears things down and starts over. They're always tinkering. You know, most franchises, as soon as they got Luca, they start trading guys away. Like you saw David Griffin trade Drew Holiday away because his age doesn't match up with Zion's age. But the Mavericks don't do that. They want to be competitive every year, and that that's great. I'm sure their fans appreciate it in, in a way. And when you do tear it down, there's no guarantee that you're going to be able to get the players you need to, to build it back up again anyway. They got two young guys between him and Porzingis, and Porzingis has been hurt quite often. That has to have set them back some. But what's their identity going to be as a team around him? How do you fill in for the gaps? He's not a great defender. What are the players you need around him? What's the culture? It took years and years. They, they had success, but it took years and years for them to get the right mix around Dirk Nowitzki to finally figure it out. I, I'm sure they will. He's so good, and players will want to play with him as he keeps getting better and better. So I, I think they're going to become a destination, and they, they will figure out the right formula because he's just so valuable. I was very critical of James Harden. I thought his act leading up to this season was as unprofessional as you can get. Uh, just uh, I, I didn't have any positives, and but he got his way. Uh, he, he wanted out of Houston. He's out of Houston. He ended up in a destination that he wants. We've seen this in the past with other players. Is this a problem, in your opinion, for the NBA, or is this something that has always gone on and the league survives and everything's fine and dandy? Uh, but, but first of all, Harden and the way he went about it, how did you feel about that? It is something like, like you just mentioned. It's something – We've all seen multiple times. And I remember when Jason Kidd was forcing his way out of the Nets and he eventually got traded to Dallas. And I was talking to Rod Thorne. He was running the Nets at the time. And we were talking around, you know, what, what he was trying to tell me stuff without telling me anything because it was such a volatile situation. And finally said, look, off the record, the history of our league shows if a star player wants to be a big enough and used another term for jerk, he can force a trade. That's the history of our league. And that's what Jason Kidd did. And, and all, you, all you have to do if you're a star is just cause enough trouble for your team and they're, they're going to trade you in the NBA because the stars are just so valuable. If you don't have them, you can't win. You can't game plan around them the way you can in the NFL. You know, you look at the NFL, some of the quarterbacks who won Super Bowls, you would never see – you know, leadership on an NBA team winning a championship of the likes of Trent Dilfer. You know, it just would never happen. So in other sports, in baseball, the best player doesn't necessarily win. But in basketball, those guys, they have that power. Always has been, always will be. Will Chamberlain got himself traded. And way before free agency, he was able to get get himself traded. So this has always been the case in the NBA because the players are just so valuable. And most times they go to big market teams. So if you're a small market team, you're up against it. If you don't draft well, you absolutely have zero chance of winning because your chance of attracting that big free agent is slim and none. Your take on the haves and the have-nots in the NBA? Well, you know, they've been an outlier, but they also show a way forward. And the way is discipline and honesty within the team, and that's the Spurs. Now, they got very lucky getting the right guy in Tim Duncan. Milwaukee looks like they've got the same kind of guy in Giannis. But Tim Duncan almost left as a free agent after his third year with the Spurs. He almost went to Orlando. He said he was going to go. 
he went back to talk to Popovich. Popovich told me the story. It's in my book about how they they spent nights in the backyard until two or three in the morning, just hashing it out and talking about the future and figuring out a, a way forward, a kind of partnership where they could win. Now, how did they win? Well, they got the right guys in there. They found two guys at the end of the draft and Tony Parker and Manu Ginobili. There's all sorts of things that happened with the Spurs that very difficult for any team to replicate. But the parts that can be replicated are the discipline and, and being true to the salary cap and creating a culture and environment in your team where the players want to stay because because you chose guys who had that kind of mindset and then you create an environment that they really valued and they were willing to basically take less money to stay in San Antonio rather than go somewhere else. Those are the things you have to do. I, lo- I look at some of these big market teams that just take for granted their power and just the reckless way they spend money. And it's just so stupid. The Knicks or you can go through all, all the teams from big cities over the years that haven't done well because they haven't really known what they were trying to do. They didn't have a plan. They didn't stick to it. They didn't perform with discipline because I've always thought they felt we've got unlimited resources. We don't have to be disciplined. But in fact, you do. If you're going to win championships, you have to exert discipline as an organization. The Spurs did that, and they were able to win all those championships. The only other small market team I can think of that's won is Cleveland. That's just because LeBron James happened to be born there, and they, they got him in the draft. Other, other than that, nobody else has been able to do it, but that, that would be the way to do it. But it's a lesson for the whole league. It's not just for the small market teams. Think of all the big market teams that squander all their resources and all their, their advantages, and they're not able to win because they don't have discipline. They don't know what they're doing. Ian, the soul of basketball, what drove you to write that book? And for those that haven't read it, what's the essence of it? It was after LeBron went on TV as a young player in Cleveland. He was a free agent. He had this TV show called The Decision, saying he was taking his talents to South Beach. And Houghton Mifflin, the publisher, they were looking for an NBA book, and they, they called me and asked me to write a book that year. And it ended up taking me, what, six or seven years to finish it. I'll tell you why in a second. It took that long. But but the thrust of the book was, here's a guy with all the talent in the world, and he's the, quote, chosen one. But he didn't know. He didn't know how to do all the things he needed to do in order to win, in order to fulfill himself. He didn't have the leadership skills. And basically, the game had not had not built that into him growing up. When you look at how LeBron came into the NBA versus all the previous great players, including Michael Jordan, Michael Jordan in high school was famously, he didn't make his high school varsity team. When LeBron was that age, he was being put on the cover of Sports Illustrated. When Michael Jordan went to North Carolina as a freshman, they didn't put him on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Sports Illustrated wanted to photograph all five players on the North Carolina team, put them on the cover. Dean Smith said, no, Michael Jordan hasn't earned anything yet. He doesn't get to go on the cover. So there were only four guys on the cover. Michael Jordan, the best player, wasn't on it because he hadn't earned it yet. How different is that from LeBron's upbringing? So... This this traditional way of coaching players and giving them the team-minded parts of leadership that really drove Michael Jordan or Larry Bird or Magic Johnson, LeBron didn't have access to any of that. And when he came into Cleveland, you know, the owner, Dan Gilbert, wanted to set up a system that would just make LeBron happy instead of giving him an environment of, of discipline where he had to follow rules and everything. There was a lot less of that. So he ended up having to go to Miami, and, and the book is all about how this, this incredible talent basically got his head kicked in for a year. And it was during that year that he learned to be the player that we see him see today, where Pat Riley 
had him playing the Miami Heat way. Kobe Bryant went after him. Doc Rivers and the Celtics, they hated the Miami Heat and they hated the sense of entitlement that LeBron James showed when he went to Miami and that team had around him. And then Dirk Nowitzki in the finals, who's waited all his life for this moment and never really really was sure that he was good enough to win the championship, he ends up beating LeBron in the finals. So it's the story of those four guys and the hard lessons that they enforced upon LeBron that got him to be the player he is. The reason why the book took me so long is because I had to wait until to see how it was going to turn out, to see if LeBron was going to redeem himself. And I was sure that he was going to, but there's no way we could sell a book about somebody that everybody hated. But when he went back to Cleveland and won the championship, finally, (laughs) now he had gone full circle and we were able to put the book out. Isn't it amazing the detractors that LeBron still has to critics. I, it's mind-boggling to me. I mean, every year the guy's in the NBA Finals, and yet there are those that like to pile on and criticize. And listen, I'm okay if you don't think he's the greatest player of all time. It's subjective, and I'm okay. Let's have that debate. But if you're going to have that conversation and LeBron's not in the conversation, then I'm not going to get involved in the conversation. That's just been mind-boggling to me. Oh, I agree. And right now I'm not – I'm not going to, I'm still going to say Michael Jordan's the greatest player of all time, but I'm very confident that when LeBron retires, we're all going to be agreeing that he was the greatest player of all time. Like, you have to prove it. You know, that's the one. If we're going to talk about the greatest player of all time, you can't give it to somebody until they've actually earned that. Yep. They've won the championships and they've, they've done everything. You can't say, well, he's the greatest because of what he's going to do. No, no. With this one category, we have to wait until you've actually done it. Like Tiger Woods was going to be the greatest all time, but now look how many titles he is short of Jack Nicklaus. Mm-hmm. So you have to wait until those guys do it. But but look where LeBron is in terms of the numbers, and he's got Anthony Davis with him, and I'm pretty sure he's going to win a championship this year. Yeah, I mean, I just don't see anybody beating them if they're nope. healthy, if they're COVID-free and all that. And yeah, and Anthony Davis is just going to keep getting better. Yes. He's, he's going to keep learning, how to, and LeBron will be able to withdraw just a little bit, but he'll still be amazing. He'll still be scoring 25 a game or something. I, I think he's going to catch Jordan, maybe pass him. If, if he catches Jordan when he retires, we're all going to be saying he was the greatest. The, just the, the numbers he's put up, the longevity – the, the, all the times going to the finals, winning with different teams. You look at how teams were before he was there and how they were after he was there. And then when he left, what happened to the team? You know, when Michael Jordan left the, the Bulls to go to go to play baseball, they won 50-something games that year without him. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't happen to a LeBron James team. When good LeBron point. James leaves the team, that team crumbles. It's it's it was all LeBron. That's a good point. So uh, yeah, so I I just think we're all going to be saying that this guy was the greatest ever when he retires, based on what I think he's going to do. I'm not going to say it now, but I bet we'll all be saying that by the time he retires. I was fortunate enough to uh, announce LeBron's first ever NBA game. He started his NBA career in Sacramento. And during the telecast, my broadcast partner, who you know very well, Jerry Reynolds, said, barring injury, I think we may very well be looking at a guy that is going to be deemed as and, and be remembered as the greatest player of all time. How about that? He made, I think Jerry made that comment in the second quarter. That, that's how impressive right. that guy was coming in as 18 years old playing in the NBA. I mean, that that is remarkable. I mean, you, you talk about Kevin Garnett. You talk about Kobe. Those guys were awful their first year in the NBA. They they struggled big time. LeBron, when he stepped onto the court in his first every game, looked like he had played for a couple of years. And he had the body of a player yes. much older than he really was. Uh, yep. He just looked like a finished product at that age. 
and he had that desire to he always wanted to be older than he was you know he had that desire to like show that there was more to him than you thought and it's always been like grant right there's always been this talk people people are already saying he's the greatest of all time but i i think it's a matter of semantics i think what they're saying what they've been saying for the last few years he's the most talented player of all time and i'm not gonna argue with that i think he is the most talented player of all time and he was that early in his career but the greatest of all time is all about what you do with that talent and what you achieve with it. And he has to do it and achieve it before we say he's the greatest. Most talented? Yes. Greatest? Prove it. Great point. I haven't talked to you since The Last Dance came out in the spring. Uh, I had Jason Hare on, the uh, director of The Last Dance, and it was fun to kind of pick his brain about how he put everything together. Did anything about The Last Dance surprise you? Not surprise me, except for just to hear him finally be forthcoming and just to, to actually get to hear Jordan say stuff that you always figured he believed or would have said if you could have ever been around at two in the morning when he's talking with friends. Sure. Because <laughs> he's put out all these books and there's been all this stuff put out about him. And yet, you know, you very rarely hear moments of sincerity from Michael Jordan where he just tells you what he really believed. The part with whatever. Isaiah, so, yeah, the part with Isaiah Thomas, no surprise there. I mean, you, you've known all of this, but was there anything that, that was revealed there that kind of, that you didn't know? No, because everybody, everybody knew that he didn't want Isaiah on the team. You know, everybody knew it. There, there were what three, there were three, there were three stars of that age group of that era. Mm-hmm. That, that won the championships and then Jordan became the fourth. So, you know, magic, Larry, Isaiah came in and took over for Larry in the East and then took over for magic on the title stage. And then Jordan came along. And so we all, we all knew every, I mean, everybody knows Isaiah would have been on the team if, if his teammates would have wanted him there. And, and that having Jordan on the team was the most important thing. And even if he never said anything about, Isaiah, even if he never said, I don't want Isaiah on it, everybody's going to know it. And they're going to preemptively say, let's just not invite Isaiah. We have to make sure that, that Michael Jordan's on this team. So I, I just think that that was the assumption everybody had for years about, about that story. Ian, we lost a great Celtic recently. Uh, I say Tommy Heinsohn, you say what? He is the greatest. And the entire... He, he spans basically the entire meaningful history of the NBA. He came in as a rookie with Bill Russell. He was rookie of the year in Bill Russell's rookie year. He won all those championships. Then when the Celtics were revived in the 70s, he, he was the coach. And then when the NBA was taking off, he was the color commentator on CBS national games for all those NBA finals. And, and I, I think he belongs in the Hall of Fame in all three categories. Everything he touched was Hall of Fame level. You know, the referees didn't like him as a TV announcer, <laughs> that's for sure. And, uh, yeah. and, I had many, and I had many tell me that, but it's just amazing. It was great just to be able, you know, I live in Boston and I go to Celtics games and he'd be sitting in the press room and when you needed him, you could just go over and talk and the guy was just so generous. He, he always had great stories and you'd always hear I don't know how it was possible, but you'd always hear something you hadn't heard before. And it might have been the hundredth time he told a story, but he'd tell it like it was it was new to him every single time. And just amazing t- storyteller, incredible wisdom. He was a wonderful artist. He'd, he'd paint all the time. He'd paint these landscapes all the time. And just a really 
thoughtful guy. There was a lot more depth to him than you ever would have thought just by looking at him or hearing him kill a ref. There was just a lot more to him, and it's a real loss. You know, there are certain people that you just want to be around to listen, and I'll never forget the times that I would be uh, in his presence uh, back at the media room at the Boston Garden, and it would end up sitting at a table with either him and Mike Gorman or him, and sometimes Jerry Reynolds would be with me. And I would just sit there, and I wouldn't say a word. And just to be able to listen to Tommy, you know what I'm talking about, tell these stories. And again, I would I would just sit there in awe and I'm just thinking to myself, wow, you know, Tommy Heinsohn with these great stories. And he had, as you said, he did it with great, uh, as if he were saying it for the first time. And it was just, it was such a treat for me. I mean that. And I've been in the league for, gosh, I've been doing this for a long time. A lot of decades. I've met a lot of people. But being around Tommy Heinsohn, you know this, Ian. I mean, that was just truly special. So here's one. He said, I totally agree. And here's one. He said, we were talking and uh, I wasn't asking him about this, but he pushed it in this direction. He said, you know, the reason why so many Celtics players from the Red Auerbach era went on to become coaches, he said, is because in a close game, at the end of the game, we'd all get in the huddle and Red would come into the huddle and say, okay, anybody got anything? (laughs) And what he was saying was, you guys come up with a plan to win this game. And so like somebody, John Havlicek or Heinsohn or Kuzi or whoever it was, they, one of them would say, well, we could run this and you could do that and I'll do this and we'll score on this play. And Auerbach say, good, let's go do it. <laughs> and how, how brilliant was that? Because now it's on the players to make it work. It was your idea. You have to make it work now. And so he, the players were always plugged into the game. And he said, that's why, that's why so many of us became coaches because we were forced to think like coaches while we were playing. And and Tommy went on to tell me, so when Patino took over the Celtics, Rick Patino said that came up to Tommy one day and said, Hey Tommy, is it true that, that Red Auerbach would ask you guys for advice in the huddle at the end of the game? He said, Yeah, that's why we all became coaches, blah, blah, blah. So Patino goes into the huddle. Tommy tells me Patino goes into the huddle. He's got Antoine Walker and Paul Pierce there as young players. And he says to them, it's like 11 seconds left. He yeah. says, anybody got anything? And they're all quiet. And finally, Antoine Walker says to him, you're the coach. You're supposed to tell us. <laughs> and Tommy was just laughing, like with that smoker's laugh he had. He's like, totally, he says, totally missed the point. That is unbelievable. <laughs> That's great. Oh, the stories uh, being around uh, Tommy Heinsohn. Before I let you go, Danny Ainge, I got uh, I got to know Danny uh, when he was with Sacramento for a year and a half. And t- to this day, he's one of m- my favorite guys. I got to know Danny, spent time with him off the court playing tennis. I took him to his first ever NFL game, if you can believe that. We stood on the sideline of a Monday night game between the Giants and the 49ers at Candlestick Park. But I love Danny Ainge. Are you, or I shouldn't say, are you surprised, but his longevity and his tenure as Boston GM and and how many great things that he's done. How do you, where would you place him as a general manager? I mean, is he, do you regard him as one of the best in the league? I do. And I, I did a story on Danny a few years ago and I found several GMs who, who told me they think he was the best GM in the league. Wow. That says something. You know, it, yeah. Now it's really cyclical, but I had one GM tell me from the Western Conference say, when I'm talking to Celtics, I don't even want to talk to Danny anymore. He say, he say he talked to Mike Zarin, the assistant GM, because he felt like Danny was going to do some Jedi mind tricks on him or something. <laughs> like he just couldn't. Right. He couldn't trust. Like, <clears throat> and I, I think personally that 
that Danny learned a lot from being around Red Auerbach. And I don't know if it's still there. I haven't been in Danny's office for a few years, but I used to go in there and there was a small, like just snapshot of Danny as a player standing with Red Auerbach after a game. Just like, you know, like a family kind of snapshot. And it's a small photo in a frame hidden in the bookshelf of his office. And I just look back at how Red Auerbach built the Celtics and he did it all himself. And in a way, Danny took all of the aspects of Red Auerbach and hired people to do those things for him. Like Red understood analytics and lineups before numbers existed. He just understood what, what would be best. He invented the six man and all that kind of stuff. So so Danny went out and hired uh, Mike Zarin, who was this brilliant guy, should be a millionaire in private business, to be their analytics guy. And he had Daryl Morey there before Mike Zarin. And, you know, hiring the right scouts. And he, he broke his staff down to sort of live up to, to, to fulfill all the functions of Red Auerbach. And there's a part of Danny where people kind of don't trust him around the league. There's really fear of getting hoodwinked by him. And that's the ultimate Red Auerbach compliment because that's how everybody felt about Red. Like everybody was scared to make trades with Red because he seemed to win all the, all the big trades. So I can see that if, if there is anything to the Celtic tradition, I do think it lives through Danny and the fact that he is a bridge from that era to this one, that even though it's a totally different game, there was no free agency back then, there was very little money back then, there are fundamentals to the NBA that were true in Auerbach's time, and they're true today. And Danny understands that and tries to make them happen. And final thing for you, the NBA, with the ratings down, obviously they're playing in empty arenas uh, like other sports, but they've lost a ton of money. Adam Silver has documented that. As we are moving now into 2021 and a, we're, we're a month in, Are you? should there be any trepidation, any concern about – the immediate future of the NBA in terms of being as great and as big in this country as it's been over the last several years? You know, the the immediate future for everybody and every aspect of our society is right now under siege a Mm. little bit, right? Yep. And the NBA, I think, is always a reflection of whatever's happening in our country. And so the TV industry is just undergoing a massive change, as you well know. The whole idea of ratings is really an anachronism. It doesn't really reflect who's watching anymore because it doesn't account in a meaningful way for all the people watching on their phones or, or becoming NBA fans without ever watching a game on TV. And then all, all of all the interest the NBA drums up just with rumors and free agency and all that kind of stuff. Those are fans, you know, and they and they 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 deliver in, in a different way than normal TV ratings. So, and then there's the whole question of uh, the NBA as a, a, a social organization, an organization of social change, because they've been out front for the Black Lives Matter movement. And how do fans feel about that, you know, and taking the knee and all that kind of stuff? These are all questions that how does it affect the league financially, commercially? It's, it's hard to say right now. But for the long term, I think the, the future of the NBA is the best out of any sport in this country for the long term because we're we're steadily moving towards an interconnected world where it doesn't matter where you live, you can access 
You can be in Mongolia someday and access the same things that we can access here. And out of all the leagues in this country, the NBA is the one league that can that can exploit that. Football is never going to be a global sport. It's just I lived in Europe. People can't understand it. It's it's unfathomable to people what football is or what it means. And plus, it's dangerous. I just don't know how much of a future NBA, uh, the NFL has because it's dangerous to the players who play it. And baseball is being seen as too slow, and young people aren't paying attention to it anymore. It's your father's game, and I just don't see a future for baseball in that sense either. Mm. But the NBA is global right now. It's uh, wonderful for television. You can watch it on your phone. <laughs> Sure. Because of the, the way the structure of the court, the camera can catch all 10 players on your phone. And it's it's simple. Everybody around the world can understand you throw the ball through the basket, you score the most points, you win the game. You don't have to explain it the way you do American football or baseball. So I, I think the future of the NBA is is the best out of any league in this country. It's just It's just getting through these next few years intact. So you can get to that future. You can get to that horizon. It's going to be really interesting to watch how the next few years play out for all the leagues and to see see who comes out of it on top at the end. But also, Grant, you look at the changing demographics of the country and where young people are going with their values and their beliefs. I think all of that is is a strong indicator in a positive way for the NBA. Ian, man, I really appreciate you coming on. You know how much I've enjoyed talking to you over the years uh, and your great job of uh, covering the NBA. It's been a lot of fun. I greatly appreciate it. And uh, stay safe. And uh, hopefully we can do this again in the not-too-distant future. I appreciate it too, Grant. Thank you so much. I really appreciate Ian joining us here on the podcast today. Well, I talked about February and the Super Bowl being this week. Guess what? Also means Valentine's Day is upon us, fellas. Make sure you're ready for whatever the night may take you. Our friends at Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming, are here to tell you that you need to use the best tools for the job so you can be ready for anything on that special day. Do you know that two million men. That's right. Two million men are already using Manscaped products to groom. Hey, make sure you're one of them. Your girl can't think of what to get you this year. Well, just tell her to get you the gift that's for both you and her. And the best way to get started is with Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0, full of the best products to keep you looking, smelling, and feeling nice. Now, the Perfect Package 3.0 is led by their revolutionary third-generation lawnmower 3.0 trimmer, which has advanced skin-safe technology and features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents. It's also waterproof, and let's be real, we've smelled the worst down there before, and that's why I'm thankful for their crop preserver and crop reviver. Folks, these products keep our boys from sweating, smelling, sticking, Absolutely awesome. And these products, they smell good. Hey, the Perfect Package 3.0 will also come with a pair of Manscaped boxers. Easily the comfiest boxers I've ever had. And complete your grooming game with the new refined cologne signature scent by Manscaped. With the same signature scent that's in all Manscaped formulas, this cologne is a perfect complement to the collection. Folks, get 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S. Just go to manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code NAPES, N-A-P-E-S, at manscaped.com. Happy Valentine's Day from Manscaped. 
Hey, it is time right now for our crowd question Q&A. And all you need to do is go to crowdquestion.com. If you have not yet signed up, it takes a minute. And maybe you can uh, hear your question answered by me right here on the podcast. Dan wants to know, what are your Super Bowl plans? Very simple. I'm going to sit on my couch. I'm going to turn the TV on right at kickoff. Uh, and I am going to watch the Super Bowl. I'm not watching any of the pregame stuff. I'm not watching any of the lead-in. When, when the ball is put on the tee, that's when I'm turning on uh, my TV. All right. Uh, Brendan wants to know, is it inexcusable for athletes to disobey the COVID protocol? Yes, of course it is. I mean, if they really care about their profession, they need to follow the rules and the guidelines set forth by their leagues. And if they disobey the COVID protocol, such as Kyrie Irving did, then yes, it's inexcusable. Absolutely. Tom wants to know, is the NBA schedule adjustment a good idea? I don't think they had a choice. I think they had to do this. Absolutely. Neil wants to know, what are your thoughts on Bielitsa's lack of minutes? I'm very surprised. I love Nemanja's game, uh, and quite frankly, I'm surprised. I know it's a numbers game, and I know that, uh, you know, they got to get Marvin Bagley now that he's healthy. You know, a lot of time on the floor. But I got to tell you, I'm a little bit surprised. Ben wants to know, is Mon Shumpert going to help out the Nuggets on defense? Short answer is no. I don't think he helps out uh, the uh, Nets at all. At all. All right, Stacy wants to know, hey, Grant, have you ever attended a Super Bowl? Stacy? that is a fabulous question. January 25th, 1987, I went to my first Super Bowl at the Rose Bowl, and it was the Giants and the Denver Broncos. And I flew from, I, I drove from Decatur, Illinois to St. Louis, two-hour drive. It was five to 10 below zero. Flew from St. Louis to LAX, Landed, it was 76 degrees, got in the blue super shuttle van, went to Van Nuys, got to a payphone, called my buddy from college whose father used to play for the Giants, and he was going to the game too. He picked me up. We went to his place. His brother was there, and I'm like, what are we going to do, man? What are we going to do tonight? You know, I was pumped up the weather. I mean, I was in Southern California for the first time in my life. He goes, what do you mean, what are we going to do? We're going to the game. I go, we're going to the game tonight? He goes, yeah, we're leaving here in about 15 minutes. His brother had rented an RV, and we drove to the Rose Bowl, and they have a huge RV lot right next to the Rose Bowl, and we pull up, kid you not, right next to John Elway's sister. And it was one of the greatest, most fun nights I've ever had uh, in the RV parking lot outside the Rose Bowl. I had two tickets, 75 bucks a piece face value, and I sold the other ticket for $750 that night, which had paid for me to go to the Giants-Niners game in the second round of the playoffs. The Giants had a bye. Then I went home for the Giants-Washington game, NFC Championship game. We were fortunate enough to win the lottery because we were season ticket holders with the Giants. Got two tickets, and I sold one uh, for $750. But my best, my best time was the Giants last Super Bowl in Indianapolis when my boys were with me. Uh, I have a friend that works for the Raiders and uh, he was able to get me three tickets at face value just to show you about how much tickets went up. I told you they were 75 bucks Stacy in 1987 right? Well the last Super Bowl I took my boys to in Indianapolis the face value was $950 and I had a game the night before in Sacramento 
It was the Kings and the Warriors. We had a 12-20 flight out of San Francisco to Dallas. The game went to overtime, and I was sweating bullets. I did not get out of Arco Arena until 10 o'clock. Obviously, a full, packed house, Kings and Warriors, and just did make it to San Francisco in time. But that was the best time I've ever had at a sporting event, to be there at a Super Bowl with my two boys, uh, and the way the game went, and the Giants with uh, another win over Tom Brady and the Patriots. Uh, we just had an absolutely great time. So that, Stacy, uh, is a long answer, but I have been to two Super Bowls. But the second one with my boys, uh, it does not get any better than that. All right, Alex wants to know, will Clay Thompson ever bounce back to what he once was after missing two straight seasons with injuries? You have to hope so. And, you, you know, with medical technology the way it is, I wouldn't rule it out, but boy, you just got to feel awful uh, for Clay Thompson. What a class act he is. What a class act. Brad wants to know, why does the NFL take a week off before the Super Bowl? Mainly for the hype and to build it up uh, and everything else to let everyone make their travel plans. Obviously, that's, that's not the case this year, but I've always thought that is um, the, the real big reason. Sal wants to know, will Luke Walton make it through the season? I hope so. You know, I've been saying this for a lot of years. The Kings' issues have nothing to do with coaching. And I don't know why people don't understand that. It's very apparent to me. It's very obvious that this is not a coaching issue with the uh, Sacramento Kings. All right, Ernie wants to know, will the players who opted out of playing due to COVID regret the decision not to play? I can't speak for them. I don't know if they would regret it or not. Um, you know, the amount of money that athletes are making now on the professional level, those that opted out, um, maybe maybe they're fine with it. I, I don't know. It would be very difficult for me to answer that question. Again, thanks very much to Crowd Question and today's Q&A. Just go to crowdquestion.com. That's crowdquestion.com. It's time for Grant. Today's rant is brought to you by New Works Plumbing, locally owned in Sacramento for 20 years. Leak detection, water line repair, bathroom plumbing. New Works Plumbing is a full-service plumbing solution. No matter how small or how large your plumbing problems, they've got a fix for you. Their expert technicians are available 24-7 for all of your plumbing needs. Just go to newworksplumbing.com, N-E-W-W-R-X-Plumbing.com. All right, over the weekend... The PGA event played at Torrey Pines. Patrick Reed won by five strokes. But on Saturday, there was some controversy with embedded ball that Patrick Reed picked up, gave himself a better lie. Now, here's what I don't understand. The exact same thing happened to Rory McIlroy on number 18. To a T, the exact same thing. Rules officials, after the round on Saturday, said that Patrick Reed did everything by the book, and they had no issues because, again, he followed complete protocol by the PGA rules, all right? They said the same thing about Rory McIlroy. No issues. Everything was done by the book. Nobody is saying a damn word about Rory McIlroy who called the deal with Reed kind of like a storm in a teacup. But yet everybody is killing Patrick Reed, accusing him of cheating because of a previous incident. Now, we all know that in golf, cheating is a big-time no-no, all right? The gentleman's game, we, we, we get it. We don't have to go there. Very often, players will actually call penalties on themselves for rules and fractions. Patrick Reed did everything by the letter of the law as written by the PGA Tour. The PGA Tour official who came over 
agreed with Reed. Afterwards, again, PGA Tour officials came out and said no issues with how Patrick Reed handled it. They had no issues with Rory McIlroy. Double standard? Nah, not in today's society in 2021. A double standard? Nah, that can't be. I mean, hey, if it's good enough for Rory McIlroy, it's good enough for Patrick Reed. So, again, lay off Patrick Reed here. He won the freaking event by five strokes. Five strokes. I I don't know if the guy is just disliked on the tour so much that his fellow PGA players are not going to cut him any slack. Tony Finau didn't have a problem with it. Roy McIlroy didn't have a problem with it. And, again, the exact same damn thing happened to McIlroy. So, back off Patrick Reed for crying out loud. Did he cheat? Not by the PGA Tour's rules, he didn't. Not by the PGA Tour's statement. And if he cheated, then Roy McIlroy cheated. And if you're going to get on Patrick Reed, get on McIlroy. It's as simple as that. And that's my rant for today. And again, thank you so much for listening to my podcast. Don't forget to check out my video rant over on YouTube. If you don't like that with Grant Napier. And again, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, it would mean a lot to me to leave a comment. Uh, It would be greatly appreciated. Again, folks, thank you so much, as always, for listening. If you don't like that... Grant Napier.